The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. And because we have not dived deep into what is going on in Iran, I, I wanted to talk to an expert. Faruza McMody is the executive director of United for Iran. And she is with us today to help us understand what is going on. Thank you so much for joining Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so grateful and I have so many questions and I wanted to start with a little bit of your background, actually, before we get into the news, just so that people understand how close you are to what is happening. You left Iran when you were 12 years old and you know exactly what can happen and the dangers of the quote unquote morality police in Iran. So I just wanted to start there so that people can understand that you know very well the dangers associated with it, because that is what led to this current situation we're seeing on the ground. That's right. That's what led to it. Yeah. So I lived in Iran until I was 12 years old. I was on the streets of Tehran, in fact, when the uh, revolution and the 1979 revolution took place. My mom was quite active and I was very engrossed and uh, politically awake for a young girl. I left the country when I was 12 with my sister. My mother couldn't leave. That was during the beginnings of the Iran-Iraq war. And I returned to Iran every year or two or three, depending on the situation and the war, if the airports were open, to visit my mother. And as you mentioned, when I was 16, when I was visiting her, I was arrested by the morality police because a few strands of my hair were, was showing. And, and you know, I had it relatively easy. They held us for five hours. They also took, my mom came in with me. She's like, I'm not letting my girl go in alone. So we all went in together. And I have this nervous tick I get when, I, when I'm nervous, I laugh. So I got in trouble for that, so for laughing mm-hmm. nonstop. And then so we had to sign that next time this would happen, I would never do this again. And if it happened again, I would get 50 lashes. And then they released us after five hours. And that's nothing compared to what we've seen the government of Iran do to its uh, women and girls over the years through the morality police and other oppressive forces. What are they? I mean, I know that, you know, what has happened since 1979 to create them, but for folks in the United States and elsewhere in the United States, this isn't something that's familiar to us. So what are they? Is it actual police? No, they're a separate uh, department that specifically works to essentially oppress women and control women. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, 90% of the people they target are women. And it's part of the 
oppressive system of the Islamic Republic. So for those that um, don't know Iranian history, Iran started fighting for its democracy in early uh, 19th uh, century, and it's been a long, a hard struggle. And there were many components that moved forward and made Iran more westernized and modern. And people were many people were happy. Some people felt like it was moving too fast. And then the coup happened in 1953, which um, CIA was involved in. And when after Iran's oil was nationalized, right? And the Shah came back. So what, when 1979 happened, many different groups wanted change and the Mullahs essentially stole the revolution. And what happened was that the ideology they used, the message they had, the way they took control was, hey, we're gonna make take Iran back to a more traditional country, to, to with more family values, women stay at home, and um, we are going to be anti-West, anti-imperialism. And some of those concerns that people at the time were just by that part, but they took that as their ideology, and shortly after the revolution, started forcing women to wear hijab, um, to cover their hair. And the women started protesting it right off the bat in the March 8th International Women's Day in 1979. The women protested it, saying that, look, if they are able to control half of the population, oppress half the population, they're not going to stop there. If they're going to take body autonomy away from half of the population, then the whole they're going to, this is this essentially a marker that this is what they'll do in the future. Others did not listen and said, you know, we have a bigger fight uh, and there's not time for this. They were wrong. We're seeing it now as the daughters and the granddaughters of those women are now in the streets. So the morality police and the policing of women and their bodies came out of the revolution and is the identity, part of the identity of the regime. So it's really hard to decouple those. It would be impossible for this regime to stay if they weren't doing this because they're literally not doing anything else short of oppressing people. And the whole country is in disrepair from top to bottom. The history here is very important to understand. And I think in even preparing for this conversation with you today, you know, I had been putting together things I had probably learned in at different points in my life, whether it be in classes in college where I took international relations, or even when I first joined Twitter during the Green Revolution, women leading these protests is a, a theme that you mentioned that continues to come up. So I want to now turn to what happened in September, because September 16th, a 22-year-old Iranian woman died under very suspicious circumstances after being arrested by these morality police. So, so give us the background of who she was and what happened to her and what has the response been since September to her tragic death. Um, so her name was Gina Mahsa Amini. Her Kurdish, she's a Kurdish woman, not just a woman, but a young Kurdish woman, which is really critical because the Kurds have been persecuted and oppressed more than almost any other group, all the ethnic minority groups. And they've led the charge in so many ways. So she was coming to town, to Tehran for a visit, simply. And a few strands of her hair was out. And um and they, the Morati police took her in, and while she was under their supervision, essentially, she went into a coma and died shortly after. And they tried to make up all kinds of stories that she had, you know, heart condition, you know, she's a 22-year-old woman. <laughs> and um, and then, so that's how that started. And um, it kind of broke the heart uh, of the nation. Her brother wrote something to the effect of, 
you know, we came and we had no one. And then a few weeks later, people tweeted, um, you thought you had no one, you had the entire country behind your back. And um, it was kind of the last straw. It's um, this kind of sparkle that started that fire, right? And the fact that it happened to a young Kurdish woman, it's incredible. Um, so shortly after her death, they decided to do, like they had a funeral for her in her town and a woman cut her hair and they put the veil on fire and off it went. It started in the Kurdish region and it took over the country. And everyone's like, we've had enough. And the young generation is said they had enough. And what we're seeing is the woman leading the charge. As I mentioned, there's uh, everyone's oppressed. Every ethnic minority group, every minority religious group, um, woman, the poor, everyone's oppressed, you know. And but the woman in particular, and they just have had enough. And because this government is so sexist and misogynistic and it's their identity people were pushing against that so the women were leading the charge and everyone else was behind them and the youth were leading the charge as well so the young generation they're generation z they're 15 year olds and for me it's particularly heartbreaking I've, I've raised three men two 23 year olds and a, now one who's 15 and these kids are the exact same age they're they're children still some of them you know 60 people have been killed have been children of the <clears throat> 450 that have been killed since the uprising. And essentially, they're looking at their older brothers and sisters and the older generation and saying, there's no future for us. We see this. It's only going to get worse. And we are rather be on the streets and risk death than go back. And they've made that very clear. Their chants have made that clear. We have more bodies than you have bullets. And our anger is bigger than your power is the very common chance as well. So we're seeing that and it's spread essentially across the nation and the women were, are leading and the youth are leading and every other group too. It's completely a leaderless movement, which is incredible and has really until now benefited the uprising. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things that I um, was struck by is the, just the symbolism of burning your hijab and I feel like, I don't know if this is just something that I read or if this is a commonly brought up comparison, but in some ways it reminds me of women burning their bras in the women's movement um, back in the 1960s and 70s here in the United States, but also around the world. Is, is that a fair comparison? I mean, the, the, the thing you mentioned that women and young women in particular have been at the forefront of this movement, but also um, some of the things you've mentioned um, back going back to 1979, it feels like this is a very feminist movement. I mean, the, one of the chants I saw is women, life and freedom. That's a predominant chant. That's absolutely the, the predominant chant. And people are getting tattoos of it. Everyone's wearing the T-shirts. Everyone's writing it all over the streets and as a graffiti. Absolutely. I do think it's a it's different and the same. Obviously, people are not... Um, getting killed for not wearing a bra but mm -hmm. definitely the symbolism is absolutely right yeah the woman woman taking their bodies back and we know the bra is not just about support when people are forced to wear bras or are not seen a certain way if they're not wearing a certain type of bra right and the same mm -hmm. thing with the hijab it's not a piece of fabric it's about um young girls as as young as seven 
being uh, degraded at school for not wearing it correctly. You know, this is what their education becomes about. They're being harassed as they enter universities. They're losing jobs because their hijab and makeup wasn't, or they were make, wearing makeup and their hijab wasn't proper. So it's about controlling women. It's so much bigger than that. So the symbolism is absolutely there. And there is so much symbolism in this story. Like, I, I think it's, um, the saying that facts crazier than fiction, I'm getting the saying wrong, but it's so true. Um, if someone wrote this and said, okay, let's write a story about a revolution, they're like, this is too fantastical. It can't be, mm -hmm. but it's happening. So we're seeing these old men that look wicked. They look like villains with their turbans. And we're seeing these young, vivacious population, women and men, and they're brilliant and they're smart and they're brave and bold. And they're standing on top of metal garbage containers and on cars and they're burning their hijabs and they're chanting. Yeah, the symbolism is great. Like we are taking this down. Another thing we're seeing that is interesting is, you know, you need humor when life is so hard. And there's some moments of humor we're seeing. And one thing that people are doing is, <clears throat> they are doing this thing called uh, turban tossing. They're essentially running behind mullahs very kind of qu quietly and quickly and just, they're not hurting them. They're just tossing their turban to the side and they're running away. And then people are filming it and having fun with it. And that is also sim uh, symbolic. You have these old men that have this turbans that's been there, have there been controlling the country and the women have this hijab and everyone's unveiling. Now the, the mullahs have to wear these scarves around their turbans to kind of hold it in place. They're the ones now that are scared to walk in the streets because of um, how they might be treated. <clears throat> I mean, that is just incredible. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like I, I the thought of of these old men, you know, feeling uncomfortable in public. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, that that's a poetic uh, and powerful um, way to uh, express um, yourself in this moment, for sure. Um, one of the other questions I had is, you mentioned um, the optics, right? I mean, I think it, a revolution, it does require in some ways, like, those visuals, those powerful visuals that we never forget. Um, and I mentioned that I joined Twitter during the Green Revolution, and one of the, the reasons why Twitter at that time for me was like, I was immediately hooked to it. I mean, I wouldn't say that today um, in 2022, but um, but I would say that when I when I joined, it was the images, the powerful right. images of young women in the streets with the green. And I feel like social media um, has been instrumental as a tool in allowing for these activists to organize um, themselves to keep themselves safe, um, you know, to to communicate. Can you talk a bit about the crackdown on the internet and the importance of social media in a moment like this, where, as you said, those visuals, those optics, the the symbolism of this youth and women led revolution, um, you know, and and how the powers that be are trying to crack down on that because it is so powerful. Absolutely, I do think that. It is instrumental. What we've seen is that so social media has made it possible. You know, social media is all the problems. We know that. But in this instant, it's been, um, uh, it has uh, enabled Iranians to share their story in real time as it folds. And I think one reason it's been so effective and it stayed um, in the media as much as it has 
um, and, and is because every single day there's another act of solidarity. There's something new happening and people are staying engaged and seeing it. It's unfolding in uh, uh, front of our eyes. And that's both heartbreaking and um, so powerful and inspirational. It's heartbreaking because we see every single death, all of us that watch it are like witness to it. And we see the mothers wailing and we see the, the, the funerals. In Iran, they have funerals on the first, second, third, seventh, and 40th day. 40th is a very auspicious day. So everyone's going back to the, um, the graves and there's protests and we all see it and we see the family and we are mourning every single death collectively. And um, it's so powerful, but it's also it magnifies it in a way because we have our own pain. We have the whole nation's pain and we see the mother and we feel the pain for her and the father and the siblings and the whole country. And um, so it kind of um, reverberates in that way, but also the hope and the, the pride and the inspiration does the same thing. And so um, it's been used in incredibly and it's hard to get information out and we know that, but people have still been able to do it. The country tries to shut it down, shut down the internet and we, our heart sinks when the internet shuts down in the region because what that means is they're about to open fire. And they usually do that in ethnic minority regions, areas near Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Kurdish region, the Iran the area near the Iraq border. And um, the government in the past has used so much, it's always there, they tried this propaganda machine that's not necessarily that effective. It's like no one buys it, but they just crank out propaganda. And um, so um, what they've done in the past is anytime any ethnic minority group has said, hey, what about us? And you're persecuting us, what about our rights? they would label them as separatists. And sometimes that would have worked in the past because Iranians are a bit, the older generation or in the past has been, been nationalistic. Everyone remembers the Persian empire. This no longer works. The second there are persecuting or going after the um, ethnic minority groups in one region, the whole country is standing up. People may not know what intersectionality is if you ask them on the street, they're living it. They're living proof of it. The women, the children, the uh, truck drivers, the bazaar store owners who are on strike, the student activists. So if one area is persecuted, let's say Kurdish region has a bloody day, the area in Zahedan and the woman in Tehran, they're all chanting the next day and they call the Kurdish region, which has been historically the most bold region in the country. And they are fighting the good fight and are paying for it dearly. The, the, they call it the eye and the light of Iran. They're taking the charge and everyone's so proud of them. So when the internet shuts down is usually in those regions and it's really heartbreaking because the information doesn't get out. The areas are rural or um, poor or um, more in the ethnic minority regions. We don't know the name of every single person the way we do in Tehran or Esfahan or Shiraz. So what has the response from the international community been? Because I know that, you know, when when there are violent crackdowns of protests, and you mentioned 450 people already killed since, since September, um, you know, there has to be an international response because that that is against, I think, I think the Geneva Conventions is what it is technically. I'm not sure what the technical thing is. I can't remember from college, but um, but I know that is against a law. Yeah. human rights. Um, mm -hmm. What what has the response from the international community been since September? Yeah. Um, 
So we've gotten more response this time than ever before. And I think part of it goes back to what we discussed around the story that's telling that's so compelling. People can um, identify with who they see on the streets. The kids look emo. They look like every teenage girl and boy that my kid goes to school with. You know, they all have the same look, these children. I think uh, the social media has made it that the culture of change globally, in a a positive and negative way, but in a positive way in this case, is like people, um, it resonates with them. Everyone kind of connects with each other. They listen to the same music. Um, They look the same. They have the same demands. And I think the fact that I'm digressing a little bit, but I'll come back that the fact that this is a leadership movement has been really effective in this way, you know, during the transition, we'll have to see, because if if someone said, okay, we want to have a new leader, no one's going to say vote for a 20 year old woman to lead the charge who doesn't have experience necessarily. And when it's leader, leaderless and their networks of people working together and completely in sync and concert with each other, advocating for each other. It's as if they're everyone's watching and they're doing the next piece perfectly um, in harmony. Um, w- w- uh, so w- when we um, um, when we have that, uh, um, we're seeing what we're seeing is I lost my train of thought. Sorry, um, that the the international community is seeing that and uh, it's really resonating. Seeing the young woman on the streets, seeing the youth on the streets, seeing their basic demands and how beautiful they are in spirit and the, their bravery. They're literally putting their life on the line, and the chance they're saying are. I'm staying in the street till I get the blood of my, uh, you know, uh, comrade, my ally back. And we're here till the end. And they're being so incredibly brave and they're showing music. So the international community has really responded to that. And um, there's definitely room for improvement. I really hope people don't forget and go away. You mentioned the 2009 uprising that my organization started. I did a global day of solidarity three weeks later in 110 cities. And Iran was on the news every single day till Michael Jackson died. And then that's it, it was dead silence. So making sure this stays in the media is really critical. We can't forget, of course, we know how the media generally works. Um, And there's been a lot of support, cultural support, and as well as political support, you know, a lot of musicians like Coldplay with a famous Iranian actress uh, did the the song that's become the revolution song called Baraya 4, um, which is essentially a bunch of different tweets that the, uh, the artist took and uh, that people wrote why they're fighting for. And they're fighting for the tiger that's going extinct. They're fighting for kissing in public. They're fighting. And they went, had the list went on and it was every single thing and everyone loved it and was heartbroken and it went viral. So they sang that song. There are a lot of other musicians. There's athletes um, uh, advocating, the media's talking about it. And the politicians are doing a fairly good job. The UN has done a um, a couple of unprecedented things in the last month. Only yesterday, um, Iran was kicked out um, of the, on the uh, Commission on the Status of Women, which they should have never been on, but they were kicked out <laughs> unprecedented and uh, a lot of votes, uh, I believe 29 positive votes. And then a fact-finding mission has been called for to address Iran. Again, came together really quickly. So these things are adding up and there's a lot of pressure. A lot of government officials are calling in Iranian government officials in their countries and having conversations with them. A lot of sanctions, targeted sanctions have happened on individuals and their family members and their banks. So they have no place to go and they don't have their money. There are some countries, of course, they're allies. Um, um, the countries that are Iran's allies include you know, they're not they don't have that many friends. So if they want to leave Iran, they're playing a you know, 
uh, a very strong front, but they're scared. They're on their back heels for sure. So we there are leaks of them being scared. There's leaks of information of them talking to the Venezuelans about potentially the higher higher ones moving to Venezuela. So Venezuela um, is on their side. Russia, obviously, China's on. Mm whoever gives them money's side in a way. Um, Syria, but Syria is busy, Russia is busy. Yemen, there's not much to go to. So th those are it. So, um, but all the other countries, Europe has been incredible. Um, government officials in Sweden and Germany in particular have done this thing. So one thing the government's doing now is putting people on death row to really scare people. And they've already executed two 23 year old young men who just were protesters. And one of them, the mom went and visited the day before, not knowing he was gonna get executed. Next day, and they had these pictures that she's smiling and happy to see her son. And the next morning they called that we, we hung him and we buried him. So, and there have a bunch of other people on death row. They're like teenagers on death row and everyone's really scared because they, they are scared for their identity, the government. So they're doing this as a tactic to stop it. And people are standing up saying that's not okay. So in particular in Germans, uh, the German parliament and in uh, Sweden's government, specific individuals in the government have taken on one person on death row and um, the sentence that could lead to death row, to, de uh, to execution. So that's this trumped up crazy charges like uh, which um, means enmity against God or corruption on earth. Like, what does these things mean, right? So, so they are taking them and they're becoming their political sponsors. So they advocate for them. They talk about them on, on social media, in the media, and they're making their case known to decrease the chance of them getting executed. This is such an important conversation we're having. What can our audience do? I mean, is there anything, you know, our listeners here in the United States, can we help? Thank you so much for asking. It is a such important conversation. I so appreciate your time. And I could talk for the, about this for hours. And I know our time is almost up. Um, absolutely. I think it's so important um, to stay abreast of information in Iran, stay updated, read about it, know about it, share it. It's simple, but it's so important. Know their stories. And these days, it's so easy to follow Persian media, even if it's not in English. On Twitter, on Instagram, it's so easy to translate these days. You press the translate button, you put in Google Translate, so you can go to the source. Sometimes non uh, Iranian folk, no, Iranian language media is getting it wrong, but not always. So some sources are better than others for sure, and all of that. So staying up to date on that, um, 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 sharing it with your community, um, especially the cases of folks who are on death row, learning about them and talking about them. They're um, rap artists, they're athletes, multiple athletes, they're actors. Um, on death row, and they're also young kids and people who are from rural, rural or ethnic minority areas, and those are the ones that are most in danger because there's no one to advocate for them and they don't have access. So those things, finding out about the human rights groups that exist and supporting them. Um, uh, in the town I live in, I live in the Bay Area, uh, a young 16-year-old woman um, started a, a campaign at her high school. They raised $3,500 for our, our um for our NGO. I'm not saying that people should do that. I'm just saying there's so many things. Another thing people can do is you can see what's happening in Iran and you can 
um, respond to it. And when, you know, women been cutting their hair and sending a video in, they're seeing an athlete, if uh, the rock climber that got harassed, then rock climbers, if you're a rock climber, you can get your team and make a video. And there's very simple ways to share that. And tens of thousands of people, if not more in Iran, will see it and it'll keep them going. And um, um, my organization is United for Iran. You can go to our website, contact me, um, um, Infra United for Iran. And um, I will sh make sure if someone wants to do active solidarity and make a video, write a poem, do anything, that it will be shared uh, widely. So these are some of the ways that people can um, act. We can also reach out to your um, government uh, officials and ask them to advocate and to sponsor someone or um, to um, um, continue uh, advocating for human rights and the people of Iran. Thank you so much for all of that um, information, because I think people after this conversation will definitely want to help. Faruza Mahmoudi, thank you so much, Executive Director of United for Iran, for being here is such a great conversation, really helpful in understanding what's going on, but also I think should give everybody a little bit of um, a kick in the pants to, to help um, as well, because these brave young people are inspiring, but they shouldn't just you know be something that we all watch from afar and be like inspired by. We should um, feel compelled to assist in their fight for freedom. We all here on progress <laughs> um, want to support the liberation of people. Um, and this is such an important part of that fight. Thank you so much again for being Thank here. And so please much. get better, feel better very soon. Thank you so much. And I wanted to finish with what you said. And I really appreciate the time you've given us. And absolutely, I want to take it back to the bra that you brought on, right? So the point is, these struggles are all linked. We are helping yes. each other because Iran is so critical and the people are having the good fight and we want to advocate for them, but also because all of these fights are intertwined. We have our own fights for um, gender equality in this country and we're either all spiraling up together or with the opposites happening. So um, thank you so much for your time and thank you to, uh, to the listeners um, for being part of this conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back after this break. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.